The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. It's in the Scottish government's interest, not just to protect, obviously, public services, but also to show further divergence from the rest of the UK. It does show the sort of strain that the market is under this winter. The other factor playing into all this is Brexit. Neither political party will even contemplate relaxing EU migration. This is the elephant in the room, isn't it? Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Lizzie Burden. Welcome to the show. So look, we've got a lot of serious issues to talk to. So I thought we'd better start with a bit of fun. Is it going to be fun? Apparently we're being promised a prime ministerial memoir like no other. Can you guess who it is? Is it another prince? <laughs> Not quite, but perhaps he might think of himself as a prince. Who knows? Of course, it's Boris Johnson uh, who's going to deliver an autobiography. We don't know when. And from the Bloomberg point of view, I don't know how much he's going to get paid for it either. But cue lots of Twitter jokes. And get your fact checkers at the ready. Yeah, absolutely. So a book from uh, Boris Johnson, not fun at all, but dominating the front pages of the newspaper and really deeply disturbing. The case of David Carrick, the armed officer in the Parliamentary and Diplomatic Protection Command, the Met Police officer who has admitted to... A vast number of rapes, relentless violence against women. The Met Police Commissioner, who only came in last year, so Mark Rowley, is going to be under massive pressure to deal with this problem. So that one headache and another, which rumbles on day after day, is, of course, the strikes. We had jobs data this morning from the Office for National Statistics showing nearly half a million days were lost in November, in part because of the ongoing industrial action. And now, yesterday, in fact, we found out that teachers are going to strike as well, but not support staff, Caroline. Perhaps good news for the parents. Uh, yeah, not very. It still means that schools may well be closed. Um, look, there's also a potential constitutional crisis that's brewing. We talked a bit about this, but it's developing Scotland. Yes, Rishi Sunak's blocked legislation passed by the Scottish Parliament that would have made it easier for people to self-declare as a different gender from the one they were assigned at birth. Sounds like a trans rights issue at its core but it's bigger than that, Caroline. It's also a constitutional earthquake because it's the first time the UK's blocked any law since the Scottish Parliament was formed in 1999 and it feeds into the fight for Scottish independence. OK, and to that we can go to a Labour member of the Scottish Parliament. Joining us now, Mercedes Villalbert. Mercedes, welcome to Bloomberg UK Politics. Thank you so much for your time. So the government in Westminster vetoing the Scottish Parliament today over this gender recognition Form that was passed in December. Just firstly, as a Labour MSP, what is your view about that? Well, I think it's a Tory attack on, on democracy and on devolution, and it's designed to distract from their own economic um, failure, uh, which they've caused over the past year and actually since since they came to power for, thir- for the last 13 years. Um, Scottish Labour uh, supported the bill, um, and it was passed with a supermajority in the Scottish Parliament. 
But I want to know what Keir Starmer's view, what Labour's view would be. Would you have blocked this issue? Well, I think the fact is that if we had a Labour government, we wouldn't be in this situation um, because we would have um, two two governments and cross-party working um, on any issues um, and on legislation. So um, the fact that it's that it's come to this, I think it just demonstrates the, the failure of the Conservative Party um, to really work constructively on anything. If I'm a voter, how do I understand the Labour position? Keir Starmer's not been clear. He said that um, he's uncertain around whether the gender recognition reform should apply to people as young as 16. He seems to be against that. Uh, And yet he's also said that he wanted to wait and see what the government's position would be. Now we know what the government's position is. And yet Labour's view on the gender recognition reform is quite opaque to me. Well, it's a, a devolved area of, uh, of of policy. It was um, passed by the Scottish Parliament and supported by the Scottish Labour Party. That's our position. That's our view. But that's not what the government is saying in Westminster. That's the whole point. Well, of course, the government in Westminster is not going to agree with us. I mean, that's <laughs> they, they, they oppose everything we stand for. We're the party of equality. They're the party of uh, division and austerity. But then where should the Labour Party overall in the UK stand on this? Where should Keir Starmer stand on it as the main opposition party in London? Well, we have a policy um, set uh, in Scotland. Um, It's a a policy which uh, is supported by by the party in Scotland and which we we voted on uh, based on that. Um, I, I don't see any 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 change in that. Fundamentally, does Keir Starmer get Scotland? <laughs> I think it's it's not really about whether or not um, he he gets um, Scotland. We we do have um, a, a Labour MP in Scotland. Um, I think it's just um, I think he's. We just need to be careful that we're not getting drawn into. Um, the Conservative Party's uh, mischief-making on this. Um, They have uh, presided over 13 years of austerity. Um, We're now seeing, as you mentioned earlier on, widespread industrial action. These things wouldn't be happening under a Labour government. The Tories are desperate to distract from their failings. Um, And that's why we're seeing um, this challenge today and and I think okay. what's important is is Labour's policy which is that we supported the bill. Um, okay on that point then of strikes at what point do you think we can call this a general strike? I mean you can't get a letter you might not be able to get your kid into school or a GP appointment. I know that Scotland has made more deals when it comes to teachers and nurses but overall in the UK you know transport is immensely difficult. Um, civil servants are, are striking there are just so many groups. At what point do, do you think we can call this kind of generalized industrial action? Yeah, I mean, what what we're seeing is, um, you know, thousands of people across the the country in in dire straits, in a desperate situation, unable to to meet the basic um, costs of living, unable to heat their homes, feed their families. Um, And so, of course, um, rightly, they're exercising their right um, to to organise and to take action in order to get a fair 
pay um, settlement and, uh, you know, Labour is on their side. And I think what we're seeing from the Tories with their attempts to um, impose even more anti-trade union legislation is an admission of failure because ultimately these strikes um, wouldn't be happening if we had a government um, willing to to invest in public services and to reach negotiated pay settlements. That's what we would have if we had a Labour government. Um, that's not what the Tories uh, stand for. And so they've resorted to this outrageous attack on, on the democratic right of working people to organise and take industrial action. So again, we want to know what Labour's position is. Does Keir Starmer need to be clearer on where he'd settle with the unions? Uh, I don't think it's a, a appropriate for politicians to negotiate um, within the press. Um, I think um, what we need to be seeing is um, the ministers responsible for the various sectors to be engaging with um, the, the, the trade unions that represent those sectors to reach negotiated um, pay settlements that are based on the reality of the cost of living crisis that people find themselves in. Um, mm. You know, these many of the, the workers that are taking industrial action in, in essential services, firefighters are, are, are balloting, um, nurses are balloting, rail workers have been out, teachers have been out, posties have been out. These are people that we all clapped for during COVID-19. We called them heroes. And the reality is that they're in, in many cases, in, in work poverty, unable to afford the basics. We absolutely need to be on that side and we have been and, and we've seen that in Scotland we've seen um, MSPs and MPs actually out on picket lines supporting workers we've seen our Scottish Labour leader out on picket supporting workers you know Labour is the party of Labour and the party of workers. But is there not a danger that on strikes unless you give clarity on where you'd settle and on trans rights that Labour appears to simply be sitting on the fence? I don't think it's fence sitting not to give a specific um, outline, a specific uh, pay settlement, because obviously it really depends in, in each circumstance. Um, and, you know, when we we don't have a Labour government now, when we do, the, the, the context will be will be different. So it might it, what, what what's agreed, what might be appropriate to agree now might not be appropriate um, in, a, in another setting. You know, if inflation continues to rise, um, then, you know, something agreed now might not might not meet um might not be affordable for, for for workers in the future. So I think it has to be about um, those um, clear uh, values and principles that Labour um, would invest in public services and would um, meet with and negotiate with trade unions. Mm. OK, um, there is another story. We mentioned it at the start of the programme, which is a really, really difficult one. But I want to talk about it. Um, it's not just because we're all women, you know, on the programme today, which is wonderful. This is an issue that affects everybody around policing. The never ending stream of immensely serious incidents. Is policing in Britain broken? I spoke to Sadiq Khan just before Christmas when we had the last review from the last immensely serious incident. And this was what he had to say when the new Metropolitan Police Commissioner came into office. Just have a listen to that from October. The problem is this. There have been reviews and reports in the past and uh, women, uh, black, Asian, Marathi, ethnic Londoners, uh, LGBTQ plus Londoners haven't seen the change they need. There's a big difference this time. Uh, this is a reforming commissioner who says he gets it. He's not been defensive. Uh, his statements yesterday and today have been reassuring. I've spoken to him almost on a daily basis since, since he became the new commissioner. The mayor of London, uh, I'll be supporting him, but also holding him to uh, account. 
So um, holding the Metropolitan Police Commissioner to account, I mean, this is uh, going to be an immensely difficult issue. Sadiq Khan, I might add and underline, is obviously a Labour mayor in London. And I want to put it to you, Mercedes, is policing in Britain broken? Well, it's extremely troubling um, and, you know, disturbing um, what's been reported today about that um, officer. Um, you know, justice is a, a devolved area in Scotland. So, you know, it, the responsibility um, it sits, sits with different governments in different nations. Um, but I, I think we have to ask the question, um, if we if we keep seeing um, reports and incidents, it, it at, at a certain point, we have to concede that it's not just, um, you know, a couple of bad um, apples or, you know, in, individuals um, and that there might be um, a sy systemic issue. And we've got to think about what is it about the police that is attracting these individuals? Um, there must be something about, um, you know, the power that they're um, that they're given, the 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 scope and, and that they're allowed to act within. Um, the culture within the, the workplace, you know, all of these things. And we, we've heard time and time again that things are going to change. Um, and I think even this morning, um, the Met Police were saying that this wouldn't happen now. Things have changed. Um, but it hadn't changed as, as recently as, I think, 2021. So it's hard for the public to have faith um, in an institution which is in in the press so often um for 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 you know these these uh these disturbing cases that come out of you know extreme extreme abuse of power mercedes thank you so much for being with us mercedes villalba is labor member of the scottish parliament really appreciate your time uh, talking about yes devolution uh, the constitutional issues between um england and scotland or the uk and scotland uh, and uh, and also the strike action and uh, how labor would handle the issue of pay very difficult to get a clear response from labor uh, north or south of the border actually about what pay rises um public sector workers should get The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.
Now, the mood in Britain is pretty gloomy after the most tumultuous political year since the Brexit vote. Three prime ministers, war in Europe and an unprecedented cost of living crisis in 2022. The country's struggling with strike action now across multiple sectors. There are a few glimmers of hope, though. Real-time indicators on consumer spending and business investment, for example, show that the UK is weathering the dire economic projections better than anticipated. Well, it's a small comfort though, uh, with so many pressures from abroad and homegrown. Now, Stephen Carroll and I have been discussing this with Hannah White, who is director of the Institute for Government. They've done a big report on this. We asked her why, with all the challenges that Britain is facing, she thinks that 2023 is actually going to be a wasted year for Britain. Well, I think the, the problem that I foresee is that UK politics is already reorientating itself now to look ahead to the next general election. And that's a somewhat depressing thing to say, but we know we have to have another general election by January 2025. Uh, And in political terms, that's not very long. It's really suboptimal for a new government, which is what this is, even though it is the fourth iteration of Conservative government, to be coming in, needing to establish itself with just two years to go before the next general election. And the reality is that what they're going to have to try to do is reconcile three different sets of objectives. What uh, the original manifesto that uh, all the Conservative MPs now in government stood on in 2019, which now seems woefully out of date given everything that's happened since, What Rishi Sunak said that uh, he would do last summer in the leadership election and then everything else that has happened since. And they've got to try and do reconcile all of that into a set of objectives that they think they can deliver uh, and show progress on before the next election. And what that is is doing, I think, is, is setting up difficult circumstances in which these have to be quite short term objectives. Uh, They have to be things, as as Rishi Sunak talked about in his first speech of the year in in January, uh, that that he thinks are achievable. The incentives for government and sort of laying down the groundwork for longer term reform and change, which is what's really needed to solve some of these uh, very sort of severe problems we're seeing now, are quite limited. And the bigger problem for the prime minister is that his backbenches aren't necessarily uh, incentivized to support him. Lots of them fear losing their seats at the next general election and, and supporting this government may not be, in their eyes, the best way uh, to win them. Mm, or indeed, many many are choosing not to stand as well. So it, given that context, what can Rishi Sunak actually get done in the, in the time that's left available to him? Well, we know that he's set himself these five objectives around cutting inflation, cutting NHS uh, waiting lists, uh, promoting growth in the economy, passing legislation to uh, to stop uh, small boats. And you note there that the, the commitment is to pass the law, not to actually make a change to, to the number of people coming in. And that, I think, is symptomatic of the fact that that's what he thinks he can commit to do. He, cut, he doesn't necessarily feel uh, that he can commit to cut the numbers. He can just get the laws through. So this is what he, he's said he will try to do. There is, all, there is also existing legislation, which uh, the Conservative government was under under this trust and previously under Boris Johnson was, had underway. We have things like the online uh, safety bill. Um, we have things like the Northern Ireland legislation, which uh, are underway and you know potentially could get onto the statute book 
Um, but we're already mm. seeing lots of examples of backbench rebellions which are going to make that difficult for the government. Sunak and Hunt have to also try to solve the need for better pay for many public sector workers. And that's kind of the eye of the storm now is, is dealing with that issue as thousands of people go on strike. Is that something where progress can be made in the sort of short term? Well, that's exactly where I think the public is focused. So Rishi Sunak set his five objectives and said he thought they were the people's priorities. But I think actually for most people in the electorate right now, although you know growth in the economy is the thing that in the end will deliver better public services, what they are worried about is the fact that they can't get a train to work, they can't get a GP appointment. And so I mean, it's, it's deeply ironic if you think about it. You know, most politicians go into into politics thinking, you know, ultimately that they would like to end up being prime minister. But Rishi Sunak's come in with this host of problems, which mean that, you know, any bigger, longer term agenda he might have wanted to pursue is difficult. If you think back to Liz Truss, she came in, you know, she couldn't, I mean, she, she did her best to, to pursue her sort of long term agenda, but she had to deal with the energy crisis. Boris Johnson before that was having to deal with Brexit. It's, it's actually really rare that a prime minister comes in in benign times, uh, really optimal circumstances and can just sit down and think, right, how can I, uh, you know, govern in the way that I want to govern? It's actually, you know, pretty normal uh, for the business of government to be to deal with crises. And therefore, that's what, you know, this is the particular nature of crisis that, that Rishi Sunak's government is having to deal with. The choices they're making in terms of bills, though, I mean, even if you just look at the start of this year, we've got a bill to limit the right to strike. We've got a bill to try and limit protests as well. Rishi Sunak's focus on stopping small boats, stopping the channel. Is is this a, a statement of, of intent, a statement of policy of what kind of government Rishi Sunak wants to wants to run? I think we have to take it as that. And in many ways, there's a sense of continuity from, from the previous governments. Uh, I mean, you could you could say that in many ways, these pieces of legislation are sort of dealing with symptoms rather than causes of these problems. Uh, you know, people are striking uh, and, you, and you're passing legislation about the strikes as opposed to dealing with the underlying issues which are making them strike. People are trying to get to the UK, uh, you know, in small boats. Well, you know, what are the big problems with the you know asylum system and so on, which which mean that they're having to come you know, illegally? Uh, rather than finding other routes to get here. So, but I think the other point is that, you know, to go back to what I was saying at the start, um, you know, there isn't much time before the next election. There isn't much money for government to spend on solving problems. So Mm. I think what we're increasingly going to see is legislation as a proxy for action. You can say we're doing something, we're not necessarily spending money, but we are taking action because we are passing a bill. Well, I mean, if the focus is on the next general election, we should we should also talk about the Labour Party and Keir Starmer. But I want to throw in one other issue, which obviously is a special focus for us here at Bloomberg, which is the economy. I mean, the the hand economically that Sunak has is, you know, amongst the most difficult. Um, he And he was also Chancellor during the pandemic. But I suppose there's one possibility that is that the recession warnings, the dismal confidence readings actually may not be realised. It may not be as bad as we think. And certainly if you look at the data from factories, from small businesses, they're still planning to invest. We've just come out of the Christmas period. Shoppers are still spending. I mean, there could be one bit of optimism, which is that the economic you know, catastrophe doesn't turn out to be quite so bad. And that would be a good thing for Sunak and his government, at least. Absolutely, it would. And I think that may be one of the bright spots on the horizon for them. 
expectations were so bad at the end of last year. And, you know, he, he came in and he his reputation for being a sort of problem solver, being a safe pair of hands, enabled him to calm the markets, uh, to calm down some public perceptions of crisis in government. And now, um, you know, for reasons way beyond his control, you know, energy uh, uh, futures, you know, and future energy prices uh, look like they might not be as bad as expected. So government spending in the short term on on everyone's energy bills might not be um, as high as was anticipated. As you say, the economy escaped going into recession. Um, you know, that they may not continue to <laughs> escape in, in 2023. But if things look slightly better um, for the economy than people anticipated when they were really fearing the worst, the government may get some credit for that. And that may give them some wiggle room uh, to be able to uh, paint a, a happier picture going into the next election. But as you say, this, the issues are exactly the same for the Labour Party. Uh, the Labour Party isn't, as Keir Starmer has acknowledged, going to be able to just promise to spend big uh, to solve all these problems in the public sector and so on, because the money just isn't there. And I think that the, the job for the Labour Party, the, the, the decisions they'll have to make this year about to what extent they're going to match uh, the sort of um, spending type envelope and so on, which the, the Conservative uh, government starts to set out over the course of this year. And we'll see, of course, in the uh, next budget uh, in March, that well, actually the, the first budget we've had for a while, because we've had a lot of uh, fiscal events and different things, but not an actual budget. We'll see, uh, I think, the, the next steps in the government's thinking uh, about what it wants to do with the economy. Are we in unusual times? You know, last year we had three prime ministers in the space of a year. Any chance that things will stabilise this year? I'm optimistic that things in government will stabilise this year. I really don't think uh, it's in the Conservative uh, Party's interest to chuck out a fourth prime minister. Um, and uh, and I think that, um, you know, the, the shortness of the timescale up to the next election means that they will be very cautious before doing so. On the issue of Brexit, are we finally moving towards a direction where the issues around the Northern Ireland Protocol, for example, could be put to bed? I have to say I'm I'm a little less optimistic uh, on uh, you know getting to what we you know we need to solve the Northern Ireland Protocol. We also need to get government restored in Northern Ireland. I think Rishi Sunak has a very difficult line to tread on this, and I'm I unfortunately think that the main incentive for him is probably to keep it ticking over as an issue, but not resolve it before the next election because uh, he you know he he faces um, opposition either way. And coming down uh, on one side or the other probably makes his life harder. So, unfortunately, I think the incentives there are for, uh, you know, discussions to continue, maybe bits and pieces of progress, as we saw in the data sharing agreement. I mean, that was that was very welcome, um, but uh, but not necessarily absolute uh, sort of resolution, uh, which is which is deeply unfortunate. But that's where the political incentives lie, I think. That was Hannah White, the director of the Institute for Government, speaking to me and to Stephen Carroll about, yes, the difficulties of actually making any policy in 2023. This is their annual conference is happening today. Lots of big name politicians are there. I suppose, Lizzie, we should give it a plug, shouldn't we? Commons leader Penny Morden, shadow levelling up Secretary Lisa Nandy and the SNP's Westminster leader Stephen Flynn, all at that Institute for Government event. Well, that's it for us from today. 
Anyway, if you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. Now, this episode was produced by James Wilcock and Mouful Hussain. Was on sound. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Lizzie Burden. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.